Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. Today, we are republishing an important podcast episode from the earliest days of the pandemic. It was not only important at the time, but it's proven to be prescient in so many ways with regards to the needs that families in our country are facing and our need to pull together to meet them. We spoke then with Andrew Zimmern, the James Beard award-winning TV personality and chef whose show What's Eating America is on MSNBC, as well as with Jennifer Labar, who's on the front lines of the fight to end hunger as the executive director of Student Nutrition Services for the San Francisco Public Schools. At the time we spoke, almost all of America's schools had just closed, and we were engaged in a massive effort to feed kids in alternative ways, mostly through grab-and-go meals outside of the schools or through food banks and other emergency food assistance efforts. Share Our Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign ended up making $27 million in grants to ensure that schools had what they needed to feed kids, that they had the equipment, the refrigeration, the personal protective gear, whatever it took. That was complex enough. Now, six months later, it's even more complicated because schools are just reopening, but in an infinite variety of ways. Some are in person, some online, most are hybrid. And Share Our Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign will now spend another $35 million in the next 10 weeks because the problem is even worse. In fact, the data is heartbreaking. Just a year ago, we had driven childhood hunger to the lowest level in more than a decade, with 5.3 million kids who were considered food insecure. Today, the Brookings Institution estimates that more than 14 million kids are struggling. And a Census Bureau Pulse Survey shows that 10% of Americans are struggling not to miss meals. Jennifer Labar, who runs the food programs for the San Francisco schools, told me that while they were feeding as many as 10,000 a day over the summer, they're now getting meals once a week to only 4,000. And much of this is due to the bureaucratic issues having to do with when the USDA granted waivers from some of the inflexible rules about how and where and when we can feed kids. In this episode, Jennifer Labar's words from six months ago continue to ring in my ears. Let us just feed children. If a parent has two children at home, let's give them the food, no questions asked. It's not the time to be concerned with who we are feeding or why. Let's just feed. And now, with the virus still taking a terrible toll, fires raging in the West, hurricanes battering the Southeast, Congress incapable of extending the relief that so many Americans desperately need. I also keep hearing the words of Andrew Zimmern, who said, I can't stress how important it is to do the right thing, to be kind to one another. Everyone in this country is in some bear trap or another, often ones we don't see. This is a time to be pulling together, a scary time for very many people in this country. Those were Andrew Zimmern's words, which you'll hear on this podcast. Finally, Let's not forget, even in the midst of this pandemic, especially in the midst of this pandemic, it's important to understand that childhood hunger is a solvable problem and that we were on the way to solving it. What we've witnessed over the past six months, greater public awareness, massive new public support, the effectiveness of national child nutrition waivers and flexibility in how kids are fed, and the greater need to address systemic causes of hunger and poverty those factors make it even more likely 
that we will eventually succeed in achieving No Kid Hungry. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. We also need to remember the vast majority of those employees, vast, vast majority, are ones that are in vulnerable communities. And I stress this because our food world is made up of people who live check to check. Let us just be children. If a parent says, I have two children at home, let us just give them the food. No questions asked. It's not the time to be so concerned about who we're feeding or why we're feeding. Let us just feed. This is a special episode of Add Passion and Stir in a special time, and we have a lot to learn about the uh, dislocations that we're all living with. And so we wanted to bring you two very important guests, uh, Andrew Zimmern, who's been on Add Passion and Stir before, chef, writer, teacher, social justice activist. Um, Andrew is also the host of What's Eating America on MSNBC. Uh, Andrew, we're really appreciative of you taking time during this extraordinary time to be with us and help us learn a little bit about what's going on in the, in the restaurant and the culinary community. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. And from San Francisco, Jennifer Labar, who has worked closely with Share Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign for a number of years now. For 20 years, she was the Food and Nutrition Director for the Oakland Unified School District, now at the San Francisco Unified School District, a community that I believe is sheltering uh, in place. And our number one priority at Share Strength has been to figure out how to get meals to kids uh, when their schools are closed, kids who have depended on school meals. So, Jennifer, we're really, really happy to have you with us. Thank you. As I said a moment ago, this is usually a joyful conversation about food and all the ways we celebrate it. Um, I'd say many of us feel like we're living in a time that we just haven't seen before. In fact, I had one of our younger staff come into my office a couple days ago when our office was still open, which it no longer is. We're all working from uh, remotely now. And say, have you know, have you ever lived through a time like this? And uh, this was five or six days ago before things were uh, anywhere near as severe as they are today. And even then I said, uh, no, this is different. Um, but what we've seen in the last uh, four or five days is a uh, unbelievable number of closings of restaurants, of businesses, of all types of uh, organizations and enterprises and an adaptation to living a new way in the face of the coronavirus and the spread of the coronavirus. Uh, Andrew, you're closer to restaurants, closer to restaurateurs, uh, more passionate about this industry than anybody I've ever met. Um, just tell me how you're, how you're processing it before we even get into any details. Um, I, not well. I, I think like everyone else, we convince ourselves, having been veterans of the, of the food world for a long time, that we can handle anything. Uh, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, I wish I could say that it's unlike every, anything I've ever contemplated because my mind sometimes drifts to some real negative future fantasizing and has over the last uh, 10 years um, as I've thought about uh, pandemic crisis and or other food crises uh, in America, loss of the Salinas Valley due to some sort of horrific event there, a, a place in California that supplies, I think, upwards of 40% of our produce. And, and 
the, the stories that I've covered on a lot of my TV shows in the last year or two have, have scared the crap out of me, ones that relate to climate and, and pandemic. A lot of the, the faces that have been on national shows the last couple of years, one of the more well-known uh, guests to anyone looking at TV over the last couple of days has been Mike Osterholm, uh, Minnesota-based former state epidemiologist here associated with the University of Minnesota. Um, so while I've contemplated these things, I've, like all of us, have never lived through them. And what I've seen over the last you know, week or two has been something, nothing short of, of apocalyptic. You know, we have cities on lockdown in America. We have a restaurant industry that's crumbling that has not gotten the, the respect that it deserves as an economic hub. We've always discussed it as a social mechanism. I'm guilty of that. I've been always talking about it as a cultural mainstay. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, the restaurant industry is a trillion dollar industry that employs 15 million people. That, that industry is essentially brought, has been brought to an incredible halt. When you add in what's going to happen in the coming days as we begin to shut down hotels and the rest of the leisure activities, that's another 15 million uh, employees. The food production world, you know, farmers, fishing boats, meat packers, drivers, that's another, that's another 25 million people. We're talking about a massive, massive exodus, a massive uh, crippling of industry. And we also need to remember the vast majority of those employees, vast, vast majority, are ones that are in vulnerable communities. And I stress this because our food world is made up of people who live check to check. It's made up in the restaurant world primarily of uh, single moms, returning citizens, young people who are in their first job. Our public assistance programs are, aren't going to be able to handle this massive influx, which is why I've been slightly rosy-minded by seeing all of the various aid packages and stimulus packages that seem to be coming online state by state. And now today with some announcements from the federal government, some easing of restrictions to allow it to be easier for people to go on unemployment insurance and stuff like that. But it is really going to create a sustained national effort to make sure that we are not only taking care of all of our employees, but as importantly, taking care of restaurant businesses, which are small, independent, in the most part, public-facing businesses that have to be available to, be, to, to open whenever this crisis ends so that all those employees have a place to onboard once again when we come to the end of this pandemic, which we know does have an end point. We just don't know when that end point is. And worse, we're trying to make decisions based on information that's changing every couple of hours, location by location. So it is, it is a crisis unlike anything that I've ever seen before uh, in my lifetime. Well, that, that's certainly been our experience as well. And so much information coming at people so fast, so many events unfolding. And uh, as you know, uh, restaurants are at the heart of Share Our Strength anti-hunger work they have been since we started 35 years ago. It's been the generosity of chefs and restaurateurs and small, all of whom are, many of whom are small business people uh, who are, in many cases are anchors in their community and in their neighborhood. And, and they're the ones who have always literally shared their strength. 
So uh, for us, and I'm sure for you as well, because you know so many of them, we're not only uh, discussing this in a kind of a professional way. This is personal. People we know and love uh, in the last 24 hours, we've heard are closing their restaurants and laying off their employees. Danny Meyer at the Union Square Hospitality Group, Ming Tsai, Mary Sumilikan, Joanne Chang, uh, Tommy Douglas, Tommy, Tom Colicchio. We could go on and on, and it's just heartbreaking to read these messages from people who have been so close to us, and I know so close to you, uh, Andrew, and to know that their their lives are changing. Hopefully, they'll stay healthy, and because that's another thing that, of course, we all have to worry about at the same time. Well, we want we do, and you know, we want everyone to stay healthy. I think it's you know first and foremost, and you know, all of those people. I mean, there's not a chef or restaurateur I know uh, who is open. At this point, my feed, you, you, you realize how many chefs and restaurateurs you follow on social media when you open up your, I opened up my feed a couple of days ago and it was just a, a repetition, hundreds and hundreds of people all saying the uh, exact same thing. A lot are trying to transition to community resource kitchen work. They are trying to do delivery pickup work. They are trying to mobilize uh, to support local food shelves for what we know is a, a coming uh, disaster on that front. Right now, our food supply is intact. Food is going into supermarkets. Yes, there are some empty shelves and some, and you know, certainly with shelf-stable products, there are seen a lot of pantry items uh, with empty slots on the shelves. But our food system today, uh, as we record this, uh, is uh, is functioning. Whether that's the case a month from now, based on the health of people, whether they're able to be at work, whether they are harvesting uh, lettuce from a field, whether they're driving a meat truck, or whether they're working in a chicken plant, um, that's the big crucial question. The point that you raised about this community in terms of giving is that we have to remember this is the most charitable industry in America. There's not a charitable event uh, of any kind uh, that does not rely on food people in one way or another to help raise money for others. We're taking that entire system offline, so to speak. And at the same time, these people who have given so much are knowingly closing their doors. Some did it by choice early, others by mandate, as the states have requested. These are the people who want to be the last people out the door. Remember, it was after police and firemen and other first responders from you know, 9-11 to Katrina and every disaster since then and many before that, it was the culinary food community that showed up first and foremost. The, these are the folks who um, want to be helping all of their fellows, and now they are, have been in the process of not only uh, closing their doors and letting their employees go, um, but in most cases are, are hunkered down now with their families and loved ones trying to be safe and get past this containment period. Hopefully we flatten the curve and are able to then go forward and do things for our communities. Many of us who are, who are uh, quarantined by one definition or another feel helpless because we're the ones that want to run out and, and stand on street corners and hand out sandwiches. We are also incredibly reliant right now on uh, the federal government at a point in time when many of us for the last couple of years have felt a, a lack of leadership 
and a lack of empathy from the White House and from the federal government, we are, as a group, all the restaurant groups, and I've been on more group calls and text chains and email chains with people across the country trying to mobilize, everyone is trying to sing off the same song sheet. We need federal relief. There is only so much the states can do. Many of them, you know, we heard the governor of New York say that the the state of New York can't bail out the New York City restaurant industry alone. Many states find themselves in the same position. So we have to have federal help. We need to have uh, federal uh, inclusion of the restaurant industry in these massive bailout packages. You know, we just saw in the news that cruise ship industry is is in line for a bailout. The size of that industry pales in comparison to the restaurant industry. We're a trillion dollar group that averages nearly 20% in taxes as opposed to a hundreds of millions of dollar group uh, group that pays around 2.8% in taxes. We have to make sure as a restaurant community and as a general populace that we have a restaurant world that while it will be different when it reopens, but we have to have one that does reopen because of the nature of who we employ and by the cultural importance to our society, but most importantly, because we're actually the ones that feed people. I have heard this phrase used over and over again. We're the ones who are trying to create a national pop-up at some point to make sure that we feed people. But to do that, we need you know, extension time for state payroll reports and payroll taxes without penalty or interest. We need suspension of payroll tax and retirement account contributions. We need grants for companies with fewer than 100 employees so that they can provide financial assistance to meet their employer, employer-sponsored health care coverage for employees. We need rent relief, moratoriums on commercial evictions, a, a task force to convene large banks and financial associations to help waive fees and provide no-interest loans. The list goes on and on. This has to be addressed for this industry. Otherwise, I fear that we will be in a much worse place as a uh, national economy, we will be we will be weakened because of it. These are such critically important points that you're making, Andrew, and such a such a critical agenda. And I, I've never been on a cruise. Uh, I'm sure they're lovely, but most of us could live without cruise ships. We can't live without the restaurants in our neighborhood. We just can't. And um, I'm also want to underscore because I think it's a reassuring point that there is no shortage currently in our food supply. We may have a shortage of coronavirus test kits, but we don't have a shortage of food in this country. So uh, we need to stay focused on protecting that, as as you suggested. You know, one of the reasons we're talking about restaurants with Andrew Zimmern is because they've always been at the core of the anti-hunger work of Share Our Strength. And that work for the last 10 years has focused specifically on making sure that low-income kids get the meals in school that they're eligible for. When the schools are closed, as almost every school in the country soon will be, over half of them are, are closed now, public schools, that becomes a different problem. We're really grateful to have Jennifer Labar with us on this uh, podcast as well, because Jennifer is on the front line of trying to figure out exactly how you do this, how you create a substitute, an alternate for a school system that feeds tens of thousands of kids. And as the Food and Nutrition Director at San Francisco Unified School District, I think you're in a 
community, Jennifer, that has now been advised to shelter in place. And, That's and, correct. And so what does that mean in terms of kids who and families whose kids relied on school meals? What are you doing to make sure that they get them now? So uh, we are still deemed as an essential service for our community. And so what we have done is opened and we are opening a series of schools over the course of the next several days. Um, we started on Tuesday with opening eight schools, and we are able to provide uh, a day's worth of meals, breakfast, lunch, and supper to the families that are coming up, and we're able to provide it for free, um, free of charge to our families. We're not Is this a, a no for, questions asked kind of thing? No, no questions asked, 18 years and younger. And we are able to provide the breakfast for lunch and get reimbursement from the state and federal government. And we were very fortunate that a local foundation funded the suppers. Otherwise, we would not be able to provide that third meal for our families. So the first two meals, will they be federally reimbursed? They're federally and state reimbursed through the SEMA Summer Feeding Program. And then the third one is being reimbursed by a local funder. And how many children are we talking about? On our first day, we fed um, over 850 students, and then on today, which is our second day, we fed over 1,300 students. Wow. And, and how many kids eligible in the San Francisco Unified School District for, for um, these kinds of meals? So on a typical day, um, you know, we have 56,000 students in our community. Over half of them qualify for free and reduced. You're just reaching a fraction of them right now. Right. We're just reaching the fraction of them right now, but I think as the word gets out and as people, you know, understand that the it's provided for them, I think we'll start getting more people to come out and and take advantage of that service. And then we're also um, adding more school sites, and then by the end of the week, um, we'll have 20 available locations for that to happen. And the thing that's different, too, is we're doing non-congregate seating, so that's part of the waiver that we're receiving from the USDA, and so we're actually sending food home for families. And I, th- I think what you're referring to, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the way reimbursements have worked traditionally for schools to get funding for meals is the kids had to eat together on what's called a congregate basis. They couldn't take the food home with them, but you're saying now the waivers are enabling that to happen. Correct. And then we're even um, providing shelf table meals for families because we know that so many of our families are struggling with homelessness. And so we don't want to provide food that they have to refrigerate or even cook. So we're able to do that, including shelf-stable milk. Uh, Jennifer, Andrew, I thought very kind of eloquently and poignantly described some of the people who are going to be impacted by this, the the hourly workers, the the restaurants, there's 50 million workers in the restaurant industry. Many of them are uh, hourly wages. They're not going to be able to go very long uh, without a a paycheck. You know these kids that we're talking about probably better than anybody. Tell us a little bit about them. What's, what, what's their life like? What's this going to mean for them? Uh, what kind of situation are they in? You, you just made a reference to a number of homeless families when people don't mm-hmm. think of kids in public schools uh, being in homeless situations, but many of them are. Try to describe these kids for us. As it is right now, I referenced um, around 50% of our families are qualifying for free and reduced, but I think one of the things that people don't understand is that in San Francisco, we are using the same eligibility standards that the rest of the country uses. And so that means a family of four can make no more than $47,700 to qualify for free or reduced. And it is so expensive to live in San Francisco. You can barely get by making that sort of money. And so it is a day-to-day 
struggle. And just like Andrew described, our families are living paycheck to paycheck. My employees are living paycheck to paycheck. They're the lowest paid employees in the district. And so right now our employees are guaranteed two weeks worth of pay. And then after that, we don't know what's going to happen for them. And so to be able to provide the service is going to guarantee some of my employees a paycheck after the two weeks. And so this is one of the things, too, that it's a benefit. The National School Lunch Program, when it's fully utilized, can be a wonderful thing for families, and it can be a wonderful thing for the employees of the community as well. And so we're hoping that, you know, normally our, we're serving about 37,000 meals a day. We're hoping that once we get fully operationalized, we'll be able to provide that many meals a day as well. And for families where normally they wouldn't have to rely on the National School Lunch Program, more and more families are going to have to be able to do that, either because mom and dad aren't able to work because they're not able to get to work because of the shelter in place or because they're ill or because they're having to provide daycare because our schools are closed. And so providing the service is going to be able to have that additional food security for them. Um, that they wouldn't normally have. We're also hoping to partner with our local food bank to be providing uh, food pantries for these families as well because our meals are only available for children. And by having the food pantry there at the same time, we can provide that additional food security to the families as well. So the schools are not open for teaching, but they have opened just for the express purpose of making these meals available. Correct. Uh, and and are you you're using, you talked about your team, these are the folks who are the, the cafeteria workers, the kitchen workers who have always done this work. They're coming in and they're, they're, they're still doing it to feed these kids. Exactly. And they're, and they're putting um, themselves on the front line to, to do this because they know how important it is. We uh, share our strength. You know, this is a, a number one priority for us. And one of the things that we've seen around the country is really amazing. Like what, when, when you just described what you've done in two days, you know, it's remarkable. There was no strategic plan. There was no consultants. You just, like, you went into action, and this has happened everywhere. Uh, Norfolk, Virginia public schools have grab-and-go sites. Henderson County, North Carolina are using restaurants to, to feed kids. Augusta, Georgia uh, is doing three meals per day by bus drop-off. So there's been this, you know, it, it almost reminds me of, like, you know, in World War II, the evacuation of Dunkirk where these thousands mm. of small boats uh, just, you know, went to, to rescue the, the folks that needed rescue. That, that's kind of what's happening here. One of the things we're doing at Share Our Strength is uh, we're making a million dollars of grants immediately to uh, school districts and food banks and others um, in Oakland and San Francisco and, and Washington, D.C., really all over the place. The first million of what I think will be many millions of dollars over the next couple weeks. One of the things I, I'd love to hear from you and also from Andrew is we've been flooded with calls from folks saying, how can I help? What can I do? And we've, of course, encouraged them to donate because that currency is the most flexible of all. People have wanted to volunteer. They've wanted to know if they could volunteer in, you know, distributing food at schools. And I know some school districts feel like they, they actually can't do that for liability reasons. It can only be school personnel. Some restaurateurs have said, you know, I want to help, but um, I'm in the process of kind of closing my own restaurant. Are there ways beyond donating? And again, I want to emphasize that donating is very important. We're in the in the very fortunate position right now where City, the bank, which is a corporate sponsor of ours, is matching every donation that comes into the No Kid Hungry campaign. 
up to $2 million. And so we are going to have funds to continue to grant out on this emergency basis. But what else do you think people can be doing? And some of it might be volunteering. Some of it might be, Andrew, kind of a, a policy direction that you were talking about in terms of the advocacy work and raising our voices to say this industry deserves and needs our help. Uh, but let me start with you, Jennifer, and then hear from Andrew. Yes, I think like right now everything is just so new and there's so many moving parts. I think first thing that people need to do is just let us know that they're available to help. And so we have on our webpage, sfusd.edu forward slash school food, we have places both for people to donate and for um, places for people to let us know they want to volunteer. And so we're asking people just to go there right now if, for either one of those. Unfortunately, the USDA does not allow us to take two donations, so we are forwarding those requests to our food bank. Um, but if they, people just want to let us know they can volunteer once we kind of get settled into um, what we're doing, then we'll know how to deploy those folks. I'm also very keen on keeping my people employed, and so that's my top priority um, whenever I can. And then I think, too, we're just trying to figure out everything and um, really just moving forward. And so those are our top priorities. Sorry, we're trying to keep business going as I'm on the podcast. Yeah, so apologize for the noise. And Jennifer, um, what, what else should Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign be doing to help you? And don't be shy. Yeah. Well, I, number one, I want to say thank you very much. Um, you're helping us buy some awnings to protect our families from the rain because we're finally getting rain in California, which we really need. And, of course, the timing is you know, awkward. But um, I think just as we're, we're also trying to figure out things to like help people with social distancing and communicate, you know, the type of service that we're providing. So we're looking for things like that. So you're helping us along those lines. These are things that's ever evolving, right? So one of the things that we're sharing is like, I, we know how to feed kids. We just don't need know how to feed kids this way. And so I think the other thing that we're trying to figure out is what is the delta um, between what we're providing and the reimbursement that we're going to be getting. So I think that there's going to be a gap there. And I really think, too, once we find out what that gap is, we're going to need money to help us with that because we don't want that to be the reason why we stop providing service to our families. And so I think some of the advocacy that um, needs to happen is, for example, right now, technically, that we have to see the child in order for us to claim the meal for reimbursement. And considering the disease that we're talking about and the social spread and we're wanting to flatten the curve, it is ridiculous for us to say to a parent to bring your child out into the community as opposed to us being able to say to a parent, oh, you have two children, let me give you the meals, and then us claim it for reimbursement. So we would really ask that there's advocacy to the USDA to say, let us just feed children. If a parent says, I have two children at home, let us just give them the food. No questions asked. It's not the time to be so concerned about who we're feeding or why we're feeding. Let us just feed and then give us the money to be able to pay our bills to do that. We're supporting the food service community so that when we are ready, we have the infrastructure to open restaurants, to do these types of things that Andrew was talking about. And then I was really happy to hear that the food stamp rule that was supposed to go into place, the federal government did not start it. So we need to look at maybe it's time to roll back the public charge rule that went into place so that the immigrants that are on the track to be able to become American citizens, they can get food stamps because they're going to be in need. 
so that they, too, can support grocery stores. They can support other restaurants if they qualify for those types of things. A lot of advocacy needs to be happening now. That's great. Uh, Andrew, you know, one of the reasons that Chair Strength is in a position to be making these types of emergency funding grants is because you and so many in this industry for so many years, every single time we've asked you to participate in an event that generated revenues, you've, you've said yes. Now I think you've made the case that we need to use uh, our, our voices as well and advocate for this industry. Are there any other things that uh, people who want to be involved in, virtually everybody does at a time like this, what, what other things can people be doing to make a difference? Let me start out with what I think is one piece of good news that I'm hoping may come out of this long term, and I'm talking about maybe a year from now. We have over-legislated uh, so many different parts of our lives uh, in America today. I am a big government advocate, and it's exactly in situations like this one, a global pandemic, that you want to have efficient big government. And I know for some that's an oxymoron, but I believe it's possible. But you just heard a very eloquent, reasoned argument as to why we need to make sure that we strip away, even if it's on a temporary basis, have a suspension of certain rules and regulations so that we can simply just feed people. And I'm hoping that the, you know, I do a lot of refugee crisis work as well, a lot of immigration work, I've done a lot of immigration stories, especially on What's Eating in America, our MSNBC show. And I can tell you that, you know, I hope now every American who, who scoffed at the idea of what Sophie's choice am I going to have to make to grab my kids and go to safety? Will I be having in America to ever stockpile food the way or worry about where a meal is coming from for those who are food secure but on the edge, that their sympathy and empathy for our immigrants to this country and those below the safety line is increased. Remember, 70% of our workforce in food production is in the immigrant community. And according to statistics, over half of that are illegal immigrants. So we have to remember that these are people who we have marginalized for decades pushed into the shadows. We've ignored immigration reform in this country. And now we have people in our food system that we want to be there who have family need and who might not be inclined because of what's happened over the last couple of years in terms of messages from the federal government and from the White House to actually show up at places to get tested should we require it for food workers, which I think we're going to have to at some point to keep up with feeding everybody in this country five, six weeks from now when this pandemic shifts into a different phase. So I want to underscore uh, both the positive of that and also why it's so necessary for all of us to treat each other with kindness and to eliminate the hurdles that institutions around the country have had to deal with in terms of making decisions about who to feed, when to feed, how to feed. We should just be able to feed uh, much in the same way that we've been able to do in other physical natural disasters. We should be able to do that now. I think if everyone was to, to do one thing who is listening to this that would be extremely helpful, it would be to go online tonight and compose a note to all of your representatives, your, your governor, your congressional representatives, and your, your two senators in whatever state that you're in, 
and remind them about the size and density and importance of the restaurant community at large and ask for what are essentially the three most urgent needs. We have to have emergency orders for changes to unemployment and disability insurance. We have to have SBA disaster loan assistance. Not all the governors have uh, declared their states to be physical disasters that green light some of those monies to become available. So we have to pressure them to do that. And we need legislative action out of Washington to close the virus exclusion in business interruption insurance. Over the past decade, insurance agencies have become more cautious about exposure. And as a result, business interruption policies now include specific virus exclusions, some of which identify things like COVID-19 specifically, right? So we need to encourage our legislators to make sure that the barriers are lowered so that the monies can flow freely. I know our governor in Minnesota, uh, his office announced a suspension of payroll taxes and other taxes and pushed them forward to April 20th. The February bills were due. uh, So he pushed them forward a month to allow for some immediate temporary relief so that restaurants in our state could hold on to those monies, which allows them to pay bills and to distribute monies to employees to pay insurance and co-pays, things like that, and, and their health insurance. So it allows the entire system to stay healthier. I, I think one of the misunderstandings of folks is that by giving money uh, to a restaurant business, in, in some way we're, we're enriching fat cats. 99% of restaurant owners in America are not fat cats. They're operating pennies businesses and they are supporting uh, vital hubs of community in our towns and cities all across America. And we need to do everything that we can legislatively to support the restaurant community uh, because of the vital role that they play. These are great suggestions. And, you know, every member of Congress, every senator on their website, there's a place to uh, send them a note. Many of them are pretty good at responding. So I would just underscore what you recommended. And as you were talking uh, in particular about the immigrant community, I, I couldn't agree more. And it also called to mind for me uh, another community that is often underserved, and that is rural America, uh, where it's sometimes more difficult to uh, reach kids uh, in need just because of distance and, uh, and lack of services. And uh, one of the things that we're doing in rural America, and here I'm just going to, you're already doing a lot, Andrew, so I'm going to pitch you and you don't, you don't have to bite but um, I think you would be perfect for this. We just launched a partnership with Save the Children called, and they work primarily in, in rural communities in America. We work all over the country, but, you know, tend to be a little bit more urban. But they've launched a, uh, an Instagram platform called Save with Stories, and it was started by Jennifer Garner, the actress, and Amy Adams. Because of the distance and the isolation of some rural communities, they uh, have uh, influencers, like you, Andrew, who are reading a children's book uh, online on Instagram that kids can watch. And then there was also, and Jimmy Fallon did it yesterday, Natalie Portman did it today. Uh, It's quite an impressive group. And uh, there's also a donate uh, function for, you know, parents or families who have watched it. And uh, it raised over $100,000 in the first 20 hours. And uh, your game, I'm going to try and send you a note to see if we can get you to be one of the one of the storytellers, because I can't think of a better storyteller than you. 
Oh, Bill, don't don't even hesitate. I think if I can quote you, uh, the answer for me is always yes. Um, and as someone who has written children's books, uh, I've written two of them. It is something right up my alley. So please, you have my email address. Please send me that and I will do that ASAP. You know, one of the things that I've also been working uh, on for the last 20 years very much is is mental health parity laws in America and doing a lot for mental health awareness. In, and, you know, we have physical distancing uh, in place, but we have to make sure that um, the social distancing on the physical side doesn't take us away from emotionally connecting to each other. This is a very, very traumatic time for everyone. You know, we're talking uh, very specifically and very rigorously about some very, very serious ideas and taking nothing away from anything that the three of us have said. I can't stress enough how important it is to do the next right thing and treat the people around you with with patience, tolerance, and understanding, to be kind to one another. Uh, This is not a time to play gotcha on Twitter. This is not a time to forget that everyone in this country is in some bear trap or another, oftentimes ones that we don't see. This is a time for all of us to be pulling together and to be making sure that our loved ones and neighbors are, are okay emotionally and from a mental health standpoint. This is very, very scary time for very many people in this country, and, and rightfully so. The, the stakes are real. But while we're practicing social distancing physically, we have to make sure that we're connecting to each other every way that we can and that we're respecting each other uh, as best we can. So thank you for that suggestion. Well, thanks for agreeing to it. And you're right. People are, you know, it's a scary time and it's, it's always worse when you're scared and alone. And the nature of social distancing is that, you know, many people uh, are alone or more alone than they once have been. Uh, it's, it's my hope that social distancing will in some ways lead to a new kind of social patriotism, not the kind of patriotism that makes us think our, our country is better than every other country, but the kind of patriotism that says, uh, I, need to, I need to find a way to, uh, even in the face of social distancing, contribute, to reach out, to be kind, to do something for uh, a neighbor. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, uh, Jennifer, as, as we wrap up here, and I'm, I'm conscious of taking your time off the front line. Jennifer, you're doing heroic work. The term heroic gets thrown around pretty easily nowadays, but it literally is heroic work to find this alternative to feed these kids. And my question for you is, to end on a hopeful note, are you seeing other communities do the same thing? Do you think what you're doing is replicable? Can, can we actually make this work over the next few weeks and months? Oh, absolutely. I think it's totally replicable. Um, you know, I, one of the great things about our community is we learn from each other. Um, Elk Grove, Natomas, just thinking about my community, Oakland Unified, um, just in Northern California alone, Clovis Unified is are using their bus drivers to take um, food out to the rural communities. And it just, it gives me so much joy and so much hope, sorry, um, that we're all pulling together and doing this wonderful work. It, the heroes really are food service workers who are, in the field and they're doing this every day and they're putting these bags together and interacting with the families. And it's so great because a story that came out of um, Bret Hart is the employees are recognizing all the children and now they're getting to meet the parents. And so we're finding joy in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this sadness. And 
so people are finding these connections and they're finding, you know, and finding and meeting each other. And so it's possible and things, good things are happening. So I just want to share that too. Well, thanks. Uh, if we stay on the phone too long, we're all going to turn into puddles here. I <laughs> Sorry. So, no, I've no, kept I, it together I, until now. <laughs> I, 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 I totally get it. So I'm really grateful for both of you taking the time. Uh, Andrew Zimmern can be found on MSNBC, What's Eating America, and, of course, on Twitter. Uh, your voice probably more important than it's ever been, Andrew. So I'm really, really thrilled that you had some time with us. Uh, and Jen- Jennifer Labar doing this great work uh, in the city of San Francisco and a lifetime devoted to feeding kids. Uh, for those who want to find more about what uh, Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign is doing, you can go to the No Kid Hungry website or in particular the No Kid Hungry uh, coronavirus response. You'll find information about how to apply for grants. You'll soon find information about the million dollars of grants that we are getting out the door and into communities. Uh, and as I said earlier, the first of several million that we'll get out. Uh, in the next few weeks. This is a time when all of us are trying to pull together and do a little bit uh, extra. And as I say, we have to be hopeful that uh, we will learn some things about how to serve each other uh, even better uh, and make our kids in our country uh, even stronger when we get to the other side of this. So uh, thank you for listening. This has been a special, a very special episode of Add Passion and Stir. I hope you'll Uh, share it uh, with others who are interested in what they can do in their community and interested in learning about uh, these very powerful dislocations that have occurred both with the restaurant community and, of course, in our school systems. So on behalf of the whole team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign, uh, this is Billy Shore. Thanks so much for listening to Add Passion and Stir. So if you want to learn more, if you want to help, please go to our website, nokidhungry.org. There's a Take Action button. Uh, there's a coronavirus response section. Uh, it will give you all the information you need to get engaged and to make a difference on this issue. What you'll find there are ways to uh, engage, ways to volunteer, ways to donate, ways to apply for grants. Uh, we're in the fortunate position to have generous partners like City. Uh, Citibank has been a sponsor of ours. They are now uh, offering to match donations up to $2 million. Uh, the next $2 million that come in will be matched by city. So this is an opportunity to have a really big impact in the community, and we hope that you'll uh, donate or find other ways to support this important work. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ad Passion and Stir. Uh, I hope that you'll take the time to share it with others, to let people know about it. So many of our friends and neighbors are trying to learn more about this issue, trying to understand the economic dislocation, the impact on kids and families. I found this conversation to be a really rich and robust conversation that uh, enlightened all of us on those issues. So from the entire team at Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign, and from our producer at District Productive, uh, thanks all of you for listening, for bearing with us for helping us uh, through this era of new technology to make a podcast work, even though we're not in the studio anymore. Uh, This is the new normal in America. You're part of it. So are we. Thanks for listening. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. 